0: TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness, Rebecca Solnit, Hollow City, the destruction of San Francisco in the late 1990s. A new generation of writers such as Rebecca Solnit, Mike Davis, and Gray Bracken are intriguing us into seeing our familiar surroundings with new eyes. They also offer a different perspective on the radical transformation that development and venture capital have brought to so many cities. San Francisco, formerly famous for taking a traveler's heart away, is now reaching for the soul and the wallet. A dot-com boom combined with a growing biotechnology industry have driven housing prices up and residents and local small businesses out. Rebecca Solnit with several books to her credit, says she wrote Hollow City in a Hurry to document the beauty and rich culture that was being destroyed and to inspire the growing movement of resistance. The book itself, published by Verso, shows no mark of any hurry. It is beautifully illustrated with photos by Susan Schwarzenberg and other collaborators. When I met with Rebecca Solnit for this interview, we started out by leafing through the book together. Here's what she had to say about the illustrations.
1: My nickname for this book is the Yearbook of the Evicted, both because it has as many pictures as a yearbook and because so many things that were threatened or destroyed, like the St. John Coltrane African Orthodox Church are documented here. Susan did some extraordinary pictures. She has a panorama on the back cover where you can see the wonderful artist Rico's extinct mural. Uh, construction cranes, debris, small in the background, one of those really sinister and evil, think different appropriations uh, that Apple Computer did where they'll steal the face of some famous person and attach it to their product. Another one that's really a favorite of mine is called Condiment City. It's a picture of a young Asian couple looking out from the sinister Metreon complex in Yoruba Buena Center built right on top of what was once single-room occupancy hotels for old retired laboring men, workmen. And uh, it's this very sterile, plastic-controlled environment. In the foreground, there's a tray of hot dog condiments. And in Susan's picture, you can see in the sense that the whole city has been laid out like a tray of hot dog condiments. And so she, with this young couple kind of gazing out through the plate glass into this P- sterile skyscrapers that almost look like Houston or Dallas or anywhere and that's a condiment city.
0: Tell me about Mary's Cleaners at Polk and Turk Street.
1: It's a, a wide photograph she took of a, just one of those little kind of working-class places, a little diner with a wonderful kind of Tuscany mural on its back wall and it's in the process of being torn down. So you see this idyllic landscape that's the mural and you see through the windows that and door of the front of the cafe, and but within it, there's no chairs, there's no table, there's no restaurant, there's nothing but the debris and chaos of rubble because it's being torn down. And you know that what replaces it won't serve the same people. What replaces it won't have that kind of modest and slightly eccentric character. It will be it might be a chain, it might be a tech development, but it's gonna be a lot more sterile.
0: You also included like a small documentary series uh, by Kate Joyce in the back of the book regarding Starbucks and that's something many people face in
1: their cities. Kate is a wonderful young photographer who took on this project for us. It all began when I went to give a tour of uh, Beat San Francisco, the subject of my first book, um, particularly the beats in the Western edition, the visual artists and poets, and how they interacted with the African-American community. There was a wonderful gallery called the Batman Gallery, one of the first great alternative spaces in San Francisco. The artist Bruce Conner was very involved in And when I went the day before the tour to check out all the locations I was going to show people, the Batman Gallery, which had become a classical music store in the 1980s, had become a Starbucks. And that degeneration of cultural life from this wonderful independent insurrectionary artist-run gallery to a chain outlet for chain coffee, the sort of cookie-cutter homogenization, suburbanization of cities, really just staggered me. And I realized that every Starbucks is the site of a lost history. Every Starbucks is the site of a lost complexity. And so Kate, out of the conversations Kate and Susan and I had, came this idea of tracking the history of a bunch of Starbucks. You can see what used to be an Italian hardware store, Ratto Hardware for... 50, 60 years is now a Starbucks. You can see what used to be the Gomez gas station for many years is now a Starbucks, that the Batman gallery is now a Starbucks, that El Bandito delivery service is now a Starbucks. You can see almost like a science fiction movie where all these different people with their own lives and imaginations all become zombie clones. A lot of these things, if you speed them up and see them fast, really function the way horror movies in the 50s did. But this is not a horror movie about the. That's an allegory for communism and its uh, dictatorships, the way 50s horror movies was. This is a horror movie about capitalism and its homogenization and erasure. Millennial horror movie that nobody's really made successfully yet, but should. You
0: actually dedicated a whole part of your first chapter to the first eviction documented in this book, the St. John Coltrane. African Orthodox Church moving.
1: Yeah, the spring of 2000 after long negotiations the African Orthodox Church of St. John Coltrane was evicted by the new owners of their building. They had been there 29 years and what happened to them was classic. Somebody bought the building for a ridiculous amount of money, uh, which of course meant that they wanted to make ridiculous rent. So it was what we call an economic eviction. They just raised the rent way beyond what the church could afford. The Coltrane Church was this wonderful little storefront church founded by uh, a man who had ties to the golden age of jazz in the Fillmore District. And so it was really a site of memory of cultural preservation as well as of spirituality and the kind of innovation that I think makes San Francisco important and significant. This idea that uh, Coltrane's music was a kind of means of access to the spiritual that really used jazz as a sacrament. It was a wonderful place with a lot of admirers and followers around the world, as well as a congregation that fed the homeless and did other charitable work in the neighborhood. It had been there for 29 years when it was evicted, and a year later it's still homeless. It's still housed in another church and what we call couch surfing when you live on a friend's couch cuz you don't have your own home so the church like so many other nonprofits and small businesses and organizations is couch surfing and in this little storefront that was a spiritual center for and a part of the african-american cultural memory for so long it's a sniffy little boutique that sells spangly stretchy little sweaters and that's the kind of cultural degeneration that starbucks is about when the batman gallery becomes a starbucks when the coltrane church becomes a sweater boutique and things like that i'm not averse to coffee and sweaters but i think that these cultural and spiritual community places are really much more important, and you need to have a city where there's room for all of them, not, not just for the commodities.
0: This is not only a, a really vibrant document of, of a period, but it's also, uh, you did a lot of research about facts and numbers that really surprised me, because I hadn't done that I- in any systematic way. I realized rents were going up, but not how fast and
1: by, by how much. Yeah, I actually managed to pull up a lot of information, some of it off the Internet, a lot from interviews, newspaper archives, and things like that. And I was surprised, too, by how dramatic things were. Uh, more than a third of the venture capital in the country was pumped into the Bay Area for the last few years. At one point, it was coming in at the rate of $20 million a day. Evictions quadrupled between 1995 and 1997 and have stayed at that high ever since. Huge numbers of people have been evicted. I like the equivalent of a small town every year is forced out of the city. 85% of the people who are evicted leave the city. More and more of them leave the Bay Area. So there's this enormous loss. There's just this massive personnel turnover. Walking over here, I was really thinking about mining, which is an issue I've worked on. Mining towns are... Uh, they strike a vein, they create a boom town. Uh, there's this whole rhetoric about how it's good for the community because it brings jobs and prosperity, but the vein runs dry and it becomes a ghost town again after they've destroyed the ecology. And the dot-com thing has belly flopped. I kind of feel like we're mining ghost town. So much has been driven out that I'm not sure can come back. But now the dot-coms used up their resources and are leaving too. And the statistics really helped uh, to paint that picture, to recognize that complexity. A lot of what was shocking to me is that so much money came into the city but it didn't really function the way that the sort of FDR, New Deal rhetoric of prosperity does. There was not a car in every garage and a chicken in every pot. There was, uh, you know, a lot of the pots and garages were evicted. And the experience most people had, including the people who were part of this wave of dot-coms, was an experience of scarcity, scarcity of housing, scarcity of parking, scarcity of room to move around because there were too many cars and we're in constant gridlock and the sidewalks were blocked with cars, scarcity of time, scarcity of space. So in a profound way, it was really an experience of poverty. Although, again, that's one of the intangible things that statistics won't bear out as clearly as you might like unless you look at how many hours you'd have to work to pay rent on minimum wage, things like that. But the statistics really bear up even those intangibles. One of the things I looked at is, How Much Rent, the great artist Bruce Conner, who's now world famous but was a struggling artist here in the 50s, making minimum wage, paid on his apartment in 1957. It took him and his wife 65 hours a month to pay their rent, 65 hours of minimum wage rent, with housing prices the way they are for a comparable apartment in San Francisco in 1999, before prices went up even more. That couple of struggling artists making minimum wage would have had to work more than 40 hours a week each to pay that rent and that went before taxes, before uh, anything else was taken out of their paycheck. And you can see through statistics and through anecdotes that we've just made the city impossible for a lot of the young people who came here and became the great artists who changed the world, became the, or, or moved here and became the great activists who fought for human rights, fought for the environment, fought for social justice. Now, San
0: Francisco was really caught between two major forces. One one was the proximity of Silicon Valley. Uh, The other one was a really welcoming pro-development policy of our current city administration and the mayor,
1: Willie Brown. Yeah, there was definitely a sort of pinchers move with those things. And most of the cities in the Bay Area willingly welcomed this social Darwinist struggle over housing that takes place when you do everything you humanly or inhumanly can to develop jobs, and you don't address the fact that every new job you create creates a need for housing. So, for example, Willie Brown's big project that he worked on both as a private lawyer in the 1980s and as our mayor in the 1990s is Mission Bay, which will be this colossal biotech complex. Uh, Last time I checked, it was slated to create 36,000 jobs, mostly high-paying, and yet it's only creating six thousand units of housing you don't need to do a lot of advanced math to realize that that creates a a net deficit of more than 30,000 housing units in a city that's recently had less than 1% vacancy. And so when Mission Bay is complete and the biotechs start to move in en masse, we'll see another wave of these evictions, of this annihilation, of the complexity of the people who not only do creative and alternative and idealistic things, but the people who provide the basic services that are always underpaid, taking care of the elderly and the young, education, uh, you know, garbage collection, fire departments, all these things that you really need to have any kind of a viable community. And so we're really destroying ourselves in the name of this false prosperity. And that's one of the things that hadn't been adequately clear. I think you could have sane development policies where you jo- tried jobs to houses. If you're going to create jobs, you have to create the housing for them. This clearly doesn't work. It doesn't even work for the people at it- who have those jobs because a lot of them are having disastrous lives. They can't find a place to live, their huge salaries all go for housing, they can't find daycare. I think just the stress, uh, anger, resentment, anxiety levels in San Francisco, if we had graphs on those, you would have seen them go through the roof the last few years.
0: Let's talk some more about Mission Bay for listeners outside of San Francisco. Mission Bay is actually aptly named because it used to be the Bay. It's a huge landfill area. When they pushed away the sand dunes to build housing, they uh, filled the Bay. And uh, that land, I do remember clearly as just a huge open space with railroad yards. And now it has received some attention because the new stadium baseball stadium was built on the edge of it. You actually recount the history of who got hold of this newly created land.
1: Mission Bay could almost stand for the economic history of the American West. It was a bay. The Ohlone Indians paddled around in it, their reed boats gathering the abundant shellfish. And as they leveled San Francisco to develop it all, they filled it in in the 1850s and 1860s. By the 1870s, the Southern Pacific and Central Pacific Railroad, the biggest monopoly of its day, had managed to get a hold of this land and made it the hub for Southern Pacific, which is the model of an evil monopoly corporation. Southern Pacific was to the transportation infrastructure what Microsoft is to the communications infrastructure of the present. Southern Pacific virtually ran California and even national parts of national government like a fiefdom for decades. It was an extraordinarily evil and corrupt corporation that was written about in the great novel, The Octopus, for the way it was destroying poor people, uh, acquiring huge land bases, manipulating politics and uh, agricultural prices. And then railroads kind of subsided. Mission Bay eventually became kind of a, a not a ghost town, but a ghost yard. And it became one of the last open spaces in the city, although it was full of toxics from the railroads. There's a what we call a vehicularly housed homeless community there. And it just had that kind of open and abandoned space, what Susan Schwarzenberg calls the dream space, the space that's left for imagination, that in cities everywhere is being erased. was vacant lots and empty spaces and open spaces are filled in. So the new Mission Bay, which Willie Brown spearheaded, as I was saying, as a private attorney, working for the Southern uh, Pacific-owned Catelus Real Estate Corporation, will be the biggest development in the history of San Francisco. It's, I think, 300 acres. It's going to have millions of square feet of uh, workspace. And what it's going to specialize in is biotechnology, with uh, UCSF, I think, as an anchor. Gray Brecken, the great urban historian of San Francisco, uh, has a really nice apocalyptic scenario Mission Bay is landfill, which liquefies and shakes like jello in an earthquake. It's full of toxic waste, and about the worst possible scenario you can imagine is a bunch of biotechnology, bio goop, as he calls it, spilling all over the place in a toxic waste uh, liquefaction of the land. And uh, so there's a lot of reasons why Mission Bay isn't a good idea, ecologically, socially, economically. One of the reasons I wrote about Mission Bay 2 is that the dot-com thing was clearly a bubble that was going to pop, but a lot of other high-tech things coming out of Silicon Valley, the hardware and software and biotechnology, are not going to go away that easily. In medieval warfare, you had these peasants you armed with sharp sticks or farm implements or something who were sent in like waves to kind of soften up the enemy troops, and then the knights came in on horseback, armed to the teeth, and protected with massive armor. I see the dot-com kids as the peasants with sharpened sticks clearing up San Francisco, and the biotech people are the knights on horseback coming after them after the city's been softened up for the real attack.
0: This is an archival program by TUC Radio, a conversation with the author Rebecca Solnit about her book, Hollow City. It is a record of the first dot-com boom from 1998 to the year 2000 that changed San Francisco. And indeed, Mission Bay is now covered with buildings and a second stadium, all built in the 20 years since our conversation. And now Rebecca Solnit is taking on globalization.
1: One of the things that's been really remarkable the last few years is the rise of the anti-globalization, anti-biotech, anti-genetic engineering movement around the world. I think just last week they had a huge anti-WTO demonstration or anti-globalization demonstration near Naples. And so there is this global movement, and I wish it didn't take evil to bring out this kind of good, but we do have an extraordinary movement that I think what's happened in San Francisco, the resistance that's happened in San Francisco is very much connected to how do you have local control, how do you have social and ecological and uh, complexity, the kind of humanistic biodiversity and a literal biodiversity, and things like that. How do you protect the small, the local, the vulnerable, the complex, the non-economically meaningful against this kind of cavalry stampede of global capitalism that we're facing and I think that what happened in Seattle with the WTO, what happened in San Francisco with the new Board of Supervisors and the posters in the streets is really all part of the same campaign to keep a world that's livable not only for all the species and all the ecosystems but for all the all the sort of little people, all the small farmers, the campesinos, the poets, the mothers, and all these things that are, are being trampled by global capital and its absolute ruthless pursuit of maximum profit. The
0: piece I just edited uh, with Mike Davis, and in, in a way, you all share those ideas, you, Gray Brecken, and Mike Davis, that a city really needs open space.
1: Yeah, there was a sense in the old San Francisco, my own neighborhood had multiple vacant lots where houses had burnt down or something, and they they grew all kinds of really wonderful, beautiful, lush weeds that harbored a lot of butterflies and a little bit of wildlife. There's just a sense in the city that not every acre had to produce a product. It was kind of like the farmers who plow around the tree and leave the tree standing with the bird's nests in it. The new San Francisco, they have to cut down the tree because they want to They want to maximize the profit on every square yard that, and the trees are in their way. The trees, of course, in this sense are the vacant lots, the abandoned buildings, this kind of romantic ruin that was part of the post-industrial city particularly that I think was very much part of the aesthetics and that kind of melancholy, but the romantic melancholy of the 1970s and 80s. I was in New York looking at photographs by Peter Hucha, a wonderful photographer who photographed that romantic ruin of the city and had a kind of idealism a kind of passion that is hard to find in young artists now because i think they're all living in the starbucks city where every square inch where people used to dream and squat and plot and perform has been filled in by you know spangly sweater boutiques and coffee chains and things like that. It was the Peter Hujar show was an extraordinary reminder of how much we've lost in the economic boom. The kind, the texture of the city, the dream space of the city, the breathing space of the, the city, the squatter space of the city, the space for the poor, the space for the marginal, the space for the butterflies who feed on our vacant lots
0: in looking at the these very intriguing modern urban historians and cri- uh, critics of urban planning uh, what they all have in common is to demand that open space not just happen and be left alone but that it become an essential part of city planning
1: i think open space and public space to me open space sounds like space like golden gate park and all the little parks around the city where you can stroll and sunbathe and throw sticks for dogs and take kids to play, but also public space where people can gather, where people can really participate in public life. There are cities now where it's impossible to be a member of the public. There's literally no place in which that public life can take place. And uh, that was a big focus of urbanist uh, discourse in the 1990s. The thing that we really didn't realize until recently that I tried to address in Hollow City is that there's another crisis, which is that you can empty out the private space in which public life arises, both the people who protect public space and open space, and the people who bring a lot of the life to it, the mime troupe who does, you know, in Shakespeare in the park, who do theater in the parks every summer, the people who organize parades and festivals and demonstrations in the streets, which I think is the true highest urban use of streets, the people who do these posters and other kinds of things that make for a rich, richly textured uh, participatory urban experience, urbanism in its ideal form, that you can hollow them out of their private spaces and thus impoverish the public life, or you can build cities without public space and open space at all. And those are both problems. One of the things that I saw a lot uh, in the new San Francisco with people who seem to come here from the suburbs and suburbanized cities who don't understand that the whole city should be your home. You don't need to have everything at home You don't, because you can go to the movie theater for your entertainment. You can go to the community pool for your swimming. You can go to the library for your books. That That true city life is about all these shared institutions that mean you can live in a small space for your private space because the, p- whole p- the whole city belongs to you, the libraries and the pools and the parks and the streets and people really lost that sense which is a kind of psychic impoverish, the l- loss of a kind of open space in the imagination that I think is really important to preserve, protect and encourage.
0: Now looking at your book and these really amazing photos you have a very contemporary feeling of being drawn into a period that spans about two years of city life. How does the book go beyond being a document of a period of San Francisco life?
1: Well, for one thing, the photographs go back to the 19th century. We got extraordinary photographs from Ira Nowinski, who did heroic work documenting the struggle over Yerba Buena Center. Extraordinary photographs of these old men in their single-room occupancy hotels south of Market, hotels that have all been destroyed. We reproduced a guy named David Jones, I think, who did a lot of photographs of the Western Edition in the 40s and 50s. So there's a lot of archival photos that give you a sense of the city over a 50-year period particularly, but also... The big question was, what is at stake in San Francisco with this boom that happened? And so the, particularly the chapter, The Real Estate History of the Avant-Garde looks at what the role of artisan has been for cities and cities has been for artists over 150 years. The chapter, The Shopping Cart and the Lexus looks at What has the relationship between poverty and wealth in the city been since World War II and in cities in general and things like that. So there are these larger histories. How do cities work? What do cities mean? What happens in cities that doesn't happen in small towns and why is it important to preserve it? All these things were at stake in a very intense way during the dot-com boom, but they're all long-term permanent important parts of the sort of biodiversity of urban life that has to include the poor and the subversive and the bohemian and the creative and the socially engaged to be uh, an urbanity that's worth fighting for.
0: That was Rebecca Solnit. We spoke in the summer of 2001 about her book, Hollow City, an illustrated record of a once-beautiful city made ugly by the onslaught of money, gentrification, and urban development. The publisher Verso said about the book that it shows that wealth is just as capable of ravaging cities as poverty. Rebecca Solnit by 2013 has written 13 books, among them A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, and River of Shadows, Edward Mybridge and the Technological Wild West. She has worked with climate change, Native American land rights, anti-nuclear and human rights, as an activist and journalist. Susan Schwarzenberg brought almost 200 photos into the book. She's an urban archaeologist who works with old photos, people's stories, and places. She is senior artist at the San Francisco Science Museum, the Exploratorium. That was an archival program by TUC Radio recorded in my former studio in a converted factory in the Mission District. I left San Francisco and I'm now living off the electric grid in the mountains of Mendocino County in a straw bale house. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. Our email address is tuc@tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.